Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, back from a week-long vacation in Hollywood, Florida, and ready to start off our spring podcast season with a true podcasting heavyweight, the one and only Sam Harris. If you're a fan of this podcast, you probably also listen to Sam's popular Making Sense podcast, or at least have friends who talk incessantly about it. You might also have read some of his books, too, like The End of Faith, Letter to a Christian Nation, Lying, Free Will, and Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. As you'll guess from the name of that last book title, which is also the name of his popular meditation app, by the way, Harris is a committed atheist, and gained notice years ago, and notoriety as well, as an especially fearless critic of militant Islam. In recent years, he's also become a collaborator, or in some cases, a debating foil, for many other well-known public figures, including Jordan Peterson, Deepak Chopra, Ben Shapiro, and Ricky Gervais. As we'll discuss, people care a lot about where Sam Harris stands on today's controversies. And he's not shy about wading into extremely contentious issues. In recent days, for instance, he devoted a podcast episode to a passionate defense of his friend Joe Rogan. In other episodes, he's held forth on another friend, or former friend, vaccine skeptic Brett Weinstein, but in that case, delivering a very different verdict. And I should warn you that these are just a few of the many issues we talk about in this episode. For those of you who've come to expect my podcasts to clock in at somewhere between 30 and 45 minutes, you should know that this one goes for about an hour and a half. But I think the time passes quickly. As you'll see, Sam Harris is a guy with a lot to say. Sam Harris, thank you so much for doing the Quillette Podcast. Happy to be here. And I hate to do this, but I'm going to start with a complaint, which is that I decided I was going to get into meditation, and I thought that your app would be the ideal way to do it. Mm -hmm. There wouldn't be a lot of sort of touchy-feely religious stuff. And I think I'm just terrible at meditation, because whenever I tried to do it, I just fell asleep. Do you get that complaint a lot from people? Uh, well, I mean, that's a pretty common hindrance. People often discover they're just they're just kind of underslept, and they you know the the moment you give them the instruction to get comfortable and close their eyes, they they take a nap. So yeah, that's that's just something that eventually you overcome. I mean, you can you can start standing up. That's that's one way to do it. But do you ever get people, and I think it may be one of them, who just like they never get past the fact that meditation is boring. Well, I, I mean, the people bounce off for a variety of reasons. It, it can be. It can be that they're too restless, right? So that they just actually are uncomfortable and they can't get past that. But all of these states of mind, including boredom, can be made the object of meditation. I mean, you can take boredom as its own focus and because it's a feeling state. And you can actually become, paradoxically, you can become interested in boredom. Really? And then it evaporates. The truth is boredom, I mean, th this is an objective claim about the nature of the mind. Boredom is just a failure to pay attention. It, there's nothing that's intrinsically boring. I mean, if you can spend 
18 hours a day paying attention to the breath, which you can, and find it rapturously engaging, which you can, then nothing is intrinsically boring, right? And not even boredom itself. So it is, I mean, boredom, when you look at closely what boredom is, it is a failure to actually grant attention to anything. You're just, you're just cycling in your thoughts, trying to figure out what to do, what to pay attention to. This isn't doing it. That isn't doing it. What am I going to do next? What just happened? Um, when, when's something going to change? And you're not actually making contact with your experience. But if you, if you were actually making contact with whatever it is, sight, sound, sensations, uh, or even the, the flow of your own thoughts, boredom just is not, is not an option. So I think there's some truth to that because I remember in December, I was driving back from Albany, New York. I was at a board game tournament. And at one point I'd like driven all the way to the Canadian border. And I'd realized that I'd spent the last three hours thinking about how I'd lost a game. Mm -hmm. And to an outside observer, I was just like staring blankly out the window at, at a blank stretch of, of highway. But I wasn't meditating. I was, I was fretting. More importantly, you had just come from a board game tournament. I mean, if, if anything proves that boredom is an artifice, look at the fact that board games can be interesting. I mean, there you have created, you know, in terms of sensory experience, you know, something out of quite literally nothing. No, but it's representational. When I play a military-themed game, mm. there, is a, there is a kind of narrative that's coming to life. Right. But the whole idea of meditating, because I know I have this friend who meditates two hours a day. And to me, that's a superpower. Like I couldn't do it for five minutes a day. Do you know when you when you watch the Olympics and you see a guy do like um, five flips on a snowboard? Mm -hmm. To me, that's that's the equivalent of watching somebody meditate two hours a day. Yeah, well, you think that, but you you do many things for that amount of time, which are not especially interesting, right? But that your your attention, your your experience is not one of overwhelming boredom while doing those things. I mean, you, you manage to, to locate attention and keep it on something, whether it's a, you know, a mediocre film or a book or just tasks, you know, errands you're running. And it's just not, it, it, the, the question is, what is keeping any one of those experiences, including the simplest of all experience of just, you know, looking at a cloud pass by overhead or feeling the sensation of breathing, what's keeping any one of the, those experiences from being something like a peak experience? I mean, something like a, a flow experience where you're no longer waiting for any aspect of life to improve. And the answer to that is, and there is an answer to this, this is an objective answer. This is not my answer just for me. This is an answer for you. If you would only discover it, the answer is at the level of how you're paying attention. The normal case is for people to wait around for something in the world to demand their attention. Yes, I do that all the time. I do that constantly. Such that, such that they, they don't, they don't, they recognize that there's no, they're helplessly granting attention to it because it's an emergency or they're, you know, it's a sexual opportunity or it's something, it's, it's something that is on the list of things that, of course, you're going to effortlessly grant a hundred percent of your being to this moment, right? Because this is this is the good this is the stuff in life that that you can't your mind can't wander from. Um, although even there, if you pay attention, you'll see how much your your mind can wander from even the most thrilling or otherwise captivating experience. But people grant responsibility to the world 
as a, as a as a gating function for their peak experiences, whereas the 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 peakness of any experience really is a, is at the level of your attention because if you drop you know a hundred micrograms of acid, which you which you did according to your bio, you did that when you were at, at oh, Stanford. Sure. Yeah, I've done that. You know, I've done that in and out of Stanford. Yes, it, again, it's it, this, that's just the the pharmacological proof that the. The, the beatific vision is not out there in the world. It's at the level of your of, of what your mind is doing right now. I mean, there is there's a a psychotic side of the coin here because if you're if you're seeing the the beatific vision everywhere and and it's the kind of thing that you can't communicate, you know, the reasonableness of to anyone else, well then you're crazy, right? Or then you're 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 transiently crazy because you're you're on a, a psychedelic. But what meditation allows you to do is is just see and understand the mechanics of this such that you can when you're when you're feeling bored or restless or otherwise mediocre you can just learn to to kind of dial up the amplitude of your attention and discover that that's the that's always the necessary piece right i mean there really is nothing else that is is determining the quality of your life more importantly than that. I mean, you know, leaving aside, you know, significant injuries or illness, or I mean, even there, meditation provides a, a certain kind of antidote to ordinary suffering. But, you know, leaving that aside, when you just look at what it's like to be you through all your ordinary moments and how those moments don't tend to become, you know, the the, the best moments in life, right? And, and the best moments come, at, you, you know, only rarely and only seem to be, only seem to be correlated with extraordinary experiences out in the world you know the the peak moment on the vacation that you spent a fortune on and waited six months to take etc but even there people discover that they're they're often just subtly looking over the shoulder of the present moment at what's coming next and they're, they're lost in in thinking about the thing that they thought was going to be so great right so there's a kind of a mirage like quality even to most peak experiences but again it's it's always at the level of being able to grant 100% of your attention to the, the, the thing that's before you. And if people are just deeply habituated to not being able to do that. I mean, more so now than ever with the smartphone in our pocket that is constantly fragmenting our attention. What, what you describe as, as a, an impediment to even starting meditation is, is, is very common, but it's, I, you, just, you have to recognize that it's something you want to get over because it's with you all the time. I mean, it is the thing that's keeping you on the hamster wheel of seeking novelty again and again, and actually not fully connecting to the thing you sought, right? I mean, that's the, 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 this mirage-like quality to, to, to satisfying desire is something to notice. I mean, you're just, even, even the satisfy, even getting what you want isn't usually good enough, right? Or it's not good enough for long. I mean, it really, the, 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 the hedonic cash value of anything that uh, that is that you have sought really degrades surprisingly quickly and well, the the pursuit of novelty ironically leads to the commodification of the object of your desire right whether it's sex addiction or gluttony mm. instead of novelty you get this crushing sameness which i guess is the opposite of everything you're describing yeah i mean you're you're just left with the the stress and dissatisfaction of the search itself Right, and it's. I mean, so, so you're you're spending you're spending so much time seeking, and very little time actually at rest. And what what we do crave is effortless rest, 
in the present moment because the, the moment itself has such gra such a center of gravity to it that where it's like you fall into the well of of being right you're no longer busy becoming right you're not trying to get somewhere you're not psych you're not spending a lot of your cycle time trying to figure out how to improve the present no that the the present is suddenly enough it's suddenly exactly what you were hoping for right so such that you're no longer you no longer even remember what you're hoping for and you're certainly not hoping for anything next and it's just that those moments are so few and far between for the average person because of because of the default state of attention and and you know you know honestly meditation is the only thing that human beings have ever devised to seize the reins of attention directly and 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 no longer and, and decouple it de decouple its vagaries from all the other happenstance of life i mean everything else you do to feel good is miss is misallocating the source of the goodness to the thing in the world so if you're surfing you know it's all about you know having the right surfboard and getting lucky with the weather and getting you know catching the right waves and okay if you can do all of that whatever once a month right well then that's going to be the good stuff or if you're skiing you're waiting for snow and you you got to get on all the gear and you got to travel and you got and it's i mean i'm not saying surfing and and skiing aren't great but and and the irony is that that once you know how to meditate you can you can make any experience including surfing and skiing a circumstance of of the same kind of profound engagement of attention i mean it improves it improves all of those other moments but you're not, you know, it's no, no matter how much you surf and ski or run or play music or anything else that, that people do to feel good, none of that actually teaches you how to improve the quality of your attention generically. I mean, it's, it's really only, I mean, whatever you call it, that is what, that is what meditation is. And so if you, if you, if you, it should just, I mean, the gateway really is to become interested in the discomfort slash boredom you experience when you try to start right i mean like it's you're essentially you're in the position of someone in prison who when put in solitary confinement finds it a torture right i mean it's literally the worst thing that people experience in prison people go insane yeah and it, and i mean that's that should tell you something about how dysfunctional I mean, truly pathological our, our default state of mind is because there's nothing about being alone in a room that should pose a problem to you. No, wait, I'm going to disagree with that. Human beings are social creatures. It's against our nature to be by ourselves. Well, it, yeah, it is. there's a lot of things that are against our nature. It's against our nature to most of what we do to maintain civilization, right? I mean, if you're just going to, if you're going to describe us as social primates, you know, so much of what we do is, uh, or, or have evolved to do is, um, is currently dysfunctional. But it, it, you know, more importantly, it says it says nothing about what's possible for us, right? I mean, there's nothing about evolution that tells us that, that it's possible to spend most of your life contemplating the 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 beauty of natural law or mathematics or music can I, can I or just make, um, a, make an observation about you because sometimes yeah. I'm listening to you on your podcast and and now and it's like I mm -hmm. feel like you're the product of a thought experiment, which is somebody who is going to think and talk as rhapsodically as possible about human potential and the perfection of the human condition, including in its 
most euphoric and, and maybe even somewhat messianic elements, but without talking in any way about religion. And in fact, being completely self-aware about your rejection of religion. In other respects, you seem to channel an extremely religious attitude toward rejecting materialist conceits, some of the Eastern preoccupation with, with being in the moment and not being a slave to your desires and your jealousies and so forth. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, I realize that this is old hat for you. You've dedicated a lot of your career with demarcating the boundary between spirituality and religion and human potential and the idea of the supernatural world. But listening to you, I do get a strong religious vibe in terms of your desire to bring human beings out of the three-dimensional prison in which we inhabit and into a, a kind of fugue state based on their spiritual meditations. Well, yeah, that, I mean, there is certainly something about my project that is purpose toward reclaiming or your, or saving the, the baby in the bathwater of religion. You know, right? So, I mean, I, I do view all of our mainstream religions as perversions of a an ancient opportunity to discover something you know truly universal about the nature of of human well-being and and um, and human suffering right so it's all it's all from from my point of view it's all about the question of you know why do we suffer and how can we live truly fulfilling lives uh, and the and the answers to that question um, personally haven't changed all that much in thousands of years i mean this is why so much of what's in our you know contemplative slash philosophical uh, slash religious literature is still so serviceable. I mean, there's, I mean, there's, there's still so much wisdom in these ancient texts, and you and you can feel like you're you're you know when you read the Stoics or when you read Christian contemplatives or or Buddhist contemplatives or Indian yogis for you who wrote or, or even thousands of years ago, um, you can feel like you're in a comparatively modern conversation with with a you know a human consciousness that is totally recognizable to you uh, and you know by virtue of when it was appearing in history did not I obviously did not encounter any of of our modern challenges and distractions so the the, the question about how to live an examined life that's f truly fulfilling I think is is answerable in, in most of the ways it always was. And, and again, it, it has a lot to do with the nature of, of human attention and, and our default state of being identified with the process of thinking, right? I mean, most people feel that they are, they're identical to their thoughts, right? The next thought that appears in your mind will sort of come up from behind in a way that you, the conscious witness of your experience won't notice. And it'll just feel like it's you, right? You'll, you know, it's, I mean, so someone listening to me now might be thinking, what the hell is this guy talking about? Well, what I'm talking about is that thought, right, is not a self. That's not you. I mean, the fact that it feels like I is what, that's what it feels like to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking. To be thinking without recognizing thoughts themselves as appearances in consciousness. And what happens when you're able to, to, to recognize thought as a process is that the, the doorway to real, you know, spiritual experience, for lack of a better world, word, or, or contemplative experience, or religious experience properly construed, that, that swings open, 
right? I mean, that is, you know, that explains a character like Jesus and the effect he had on people when he was, to some degree, speaking perennial wisdom, to perhaps to some degree confabulating within the context of, of a an Iron Age worldview, but, you know, gathering people to him, talking about how to, you know, on, on the most basic level, how to transcend ordinary human suffering. There's there's a prophetic quality, and and, I, and maybe it's unavoidable uh, in this age. I'm friends with Jordan Peterson here in Toronto, and he, mm. he, he also, I mean, intellectually, he's also always been focused on the question of suffering and the question of evil. Like Jordan, you've got millions of followers. We live in a post-religious age, and even... If you're not someone like you who intellectually is already committed to the projects that you've been discussing, people are looking for prophetic voices to follow. I, I know that here in Toronto, Jordan Peterson, sometimes people just come up to him on the street and the way they interact with him is kind of the way Catholics would interact with a Pope if they met him. Like mm -hmm. there, there's a sort of transference of a sense of piety and worship from religious to secular figures are you sometimes aware that, that sometimes people listening to you, they may be falling into that kind of model? I do think there's a big difference between what Jordan and I are doing. Um, I mean, I, I, I like Jordan a lot and we agree about a lot, but where we disagree is on, the, on this terrain around what is necessary to believe to get the whole spiritual project off the ground, right? And my view is that you, you need believe nearly nothing at all or next to nothing. I mean, really, the, the only belief you need to take on board is really has, has the shape of a kind of scientific hypothesis that, that certain things are worth paying attention to, right? So, I mean, for instance, look how this conversation started. I, I suggested to you that you could become interested in the nature of boredom. I'm still not convinced of that. I find boredom meta-boring. Right, or, or you could become interested in the source of your own discomfort or in the nature of psychological suffering. I mean, if you were locked in a room by yourself with no books or media or you know anything to distract you and you're just alone with your thoughts, right? Now, that if that quickly became intolerable to you as it, as it does to for most people, you, you'll suffer. You'll, you'd suffer for as long as you would suffer, but eventually you could become interested in how you're suffering. Right. What, what is, what's the actual what is meeting out these blows to you emotionally if all all you're doing is sitting comfortably? I mean, just give yourself the most comfortable chair and a quite beautiful room. Right. Maybe you have a view of a you know a beautiful sky. Right. But nothing to do. Why is that not a purely pleasant experience? On my account, there's nothing you need to believe. There's certainly no myth you need to endorse. You don't have to develop a fondness for any iconography or any spiritual tradition. You don't have to believe in Jesus. You don't have to think the Bible is a special book. You can get the entire project of becoming just like the Buddha off the ground by paying close attention, right? That's that's my thesis. And everything you need to need to discover about the nature of the mind to come out of suffering in, in that circumstance is discoverable from the first person side by virtue of just paying closer and closer attention. Whereas Jordan is much more in the project of telling people stories and endorsing their stories. The two of you in, in some ways are opposites because he's very externally prescriptive in some respects and saying mm. the following actions will lead to a building of character. 
Whereas from, from what I can tell of your project, you start the other way. You, you, you want people to start with nothing except self-awareness and a willingness to probe the vagaries of their own mind and let that be their guide. I simply meant that in the way that both of you have extraordinary followings, including, I would submit, people who look to you not just for commentary on issues of the day, but a way to organize their thoughts and lead their lives. Mm. There is a, um, a pastoral element right. to it. And also, just not to make too much of this difference, there are many things that Jordan would recommend to people that I would also recommend. I've written a book on the ethics of lying. Well, we should talk about that because I heard your episode with Ricky Gervais about that. and I found it fascinating. Yeah. So I mean, so I have recommendations like that. You know, don't lie because it it massively complicates your life and your your relationships and is really the the engine that is going to produce a lot of chaos for you. There, there are things like that. I guess that the difference I see is that so much of my intellectual project is to identify and dispense with dogma. Right. I mean, I, I think dogma is really at, at the root of almost everything that ails us ethically, intellectually, politically. I mean, it's just people's inability to think through their positions afresh and come to new and come to new ones based on, you know, better evidence, better arguments, better data. I mean, that is what divides us in the end. And so. I mean, given that that's my focus, yeah, I have very little sympathy for people who want to hold on to ancient dogmas, right? So that's why that's that's where the atheism piece seemed to take up so much of my my bandwidth for so many years because I I, I just saw divisive dogmas everywhere, and that's really where Jordan and I t tend to disagree because you know what he is going going to call a a life saving and and absolutely indispensable story or myth, I am, you know, more often than not going to identify one or another dogmatic attachment that I think we no longer need, right? And so that, that's where we wind up getting wrapped around the axle in our various debates. One man's uh, timeless truth is another man's dogma. The basic claim here, which is just there for anyone to authenticate for themselves, is that you can explore the nature of of your own mind directly without believing anything, just just believing that this, that, that this is worth paying attention to and, the, and see if you can detect how it is you come to be anything less than perfectly happy, per, perfectly tranquil in your own company. You know, after five minutes, after a mere five minutes of sitting with your eyes closed, you know, many people are jumping out of their skins that should be, or at least could be, interesting. And it's definitely, it's at that point where your your curiosity can be repaid by, you know, genuine breakthroughs into the nature of your own your own mind. There was a book a couple of years ago, 10% Happier. Dan Harris, yeah. 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 And I, so I liked it for a couple of reasons. First of all, he promised me 10% happier. Like you're promising me like 100% happier. I don't, I don't trust you. He promised me 10% happier, which seemed reasonable. I like the fact that he was a media guy. In fact, like he had some kind of quasi meltdown on air, which is what led him to meditation and mindfulness. But what I really liked is he told this story about mm. how he was completely skeptical of meditation, like in the same way I was, like his same sort of uh, dismissive, wise-ass attitude. But then he started doing it and he just broke down in tears and had some kind of cataclysmic emotional experience. And as soon as I read that, I was like, okay, that's interesting because you got to 
tear something down before you rebuild it, right? Well, you know, I mean, take a look at the book again. You'll see the part where he says that it, that I'm the one who convinced him to go on his first meditation retreat. Uh, okay. I think he called himself a Jubu. Is that right? A Jewish that's Buddhist? possible. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that, that didn't originate with him, but that, that's many people notice that some of the first American Buddhists or a disproportionate number of the first American Buddhists were Jewish. Um, and many, many, many esteemed Buddhist teachers are Jewish. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, Dan, Dan's a friend and that's a fantastic book. And it's a book I actually recommend to people often before I would even recommend my own book on the topic, Waking Up, because for, for the very reasons you cite, because Dan came to this so skeptically, right? He did not, he, you know, he, he wasn't, he wasn't a wild eyed hippie or uh, somebody who had taken psychedelics first and then and, and and therefore knew that it was possible to have you know a fundamentally different experience of consciousness um and so he he kind of was dragged kicking and screaming to the to the practice and so so the, the book is great for people who are consider themselves hard-headed skeptics who don't want any right. of the um the outward embarrassing affectations beads and all the stuff the robes yeah. and the vegetarian stuff saffron so it's it's a great book and and Dan Dan's great so though what's interesting is that for like a year after I recommended that book to everybody who was having a hard time in life I was like read this book and make you feel better but I like I never actually did anything from the book like I just recommended it to other people yeah well and a few it, people actually said it changed their life you know Dan went on his first retreat and that I mean a a silent meditation retreat is often the the necessary crucible for people to have to be forced long enough and hard enough into the present moment so that they actually have something like a breakthrough and then they re then they recognize okay this is what meditation is it's a kind of detox it's cuz yeah. when he was at this this retreat there was a sensory deprivation aspect to it right if he had distractions, he never would have got to that moment of self-discovery. Yeah, and that's that's all too common. I, mean, I would say psychedelics are also the other door here for people where if you've taken LSD or psilocybin or alternately MDMA, which is not technically a psychedelic, but can certainly uh, open the mind to the positive end of the continuum of, of experience, the, the one thing that's that's true of psychedelics that isn't true of meditation is you you're guaranteed to have an effect i mean there's there's no one the way you just spoke about meditation uh is not a way that any person in human history has ever spoken about 100 micrograms of lsd or you know 3 grams of mushrooms right i mean this is just this is you know whatever your experience if it's possible to have you know, harrowingly negative experiences too. I mean, that's important to to remind people of. But you know, the, the the bad trips are are there as well. But the possibility of being bored, the possibility of not seeing the point, possibility of of in some sense nothing happening, that's just that's just not in the cards, right? So you're you're guaranteed to have something quite profound for for better or worse happen to you. So at some point, you know, right in, on schedule in, in an hour or so, if you take any of these drugs. And, and so it's for that reason that they've, you know, historically in the last 75 years or so, been such a reliable gateway for people to discover the path of meditation, because it's the thing that proved to hard-headed skeptics that, okay, wait a minute, I mean, whatever whatever I believe to be true about 
the human mind or the possibilities of, of living a good life. I just was shown that consciousness is not what it has always seemed to be. I mean, the, the, the spectrum is, is quite wider. The brain contains multitudes. It's, it's a proof of concept. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 then, and then once and then there's, there's not much thought that needs to be added to that to convince you that there is a path beyond psychedelics because it's just it's not psychedelics don't do anything to the brain that the brain isn't capable of doing itself. I mean, they, they're mimicking neurotransmitters or they're changing the reuptake rate of neurotransmitters. I mean, there's, it's just it's all pharmacology in there. And then the question is, what if any of these changes can be governed by different kinds of practices that don't entail repeatedly taking psychedelics? I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, especially critical of repeatedly taking psychedelics. It's just, but it, it just, it's not, it's not the same endeavor ultimately as, as meditation because it's, I mean, one, it gives you the, the quite erroneous sense that freedom comes from stringing lots of peak experiences together, right? That it's a matter of getting high again and again and again. And that's really just, that's just not true. I mean, the, the thing to be discovered ultimately is that there's something intrinsic to the nature of even ordinary consciousness that is in fact free of self and, and therefore free of all the problems that, that come, you know, strung along on on this sense of self. And um, so if you, if you keep just taking psychedelics, you, you can get the misleading sense that, that it requires the pyrotechnics of the psychedelic experience to have that insight. And, and it really doesn't. And so that's, that's why meditation is you know, ultimately a more important discovery, I would say. And now a message from one of our commercial partners, BetterHelp Online Therapy. And a reminder that it's never a bad time to talk about taking care of yourself. I'm sure many of the people listening to this podcast spend a lot of time taking care of others, but how often do you neglect your own needs, especially when it comes to mental health? Fear, anxiety, and depression aren't things that anyone should have to go through alone. And I speak from experience when I say that it helps to have a therapist to talk to when things get difficult. For those looking for a convenient option, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why more than 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by going to betterhelp.com quillette. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now back to our Quillette podcast. How did you convince Ricky Gervais to do a podcast with you? And not, not just a podcast, it's one that people pay money for. Um, well, we were just, ha it, it actually evolved in the way that it, it seems to have, because I mean, so we framed it as this phone call and it really started as a phone call. The one I heard, because I'm cheap, so I didn't have to pay money to hear the, the intro one. Mm -hmm. You guys just started talking about, hey, what do you prefer, cats or yeah. dogs? Like yeah, that's yeah. literally how it started. And then you got into the trolley problem and free will and all the stuff at the end. Uh, whose idea was well, that? They, I mean, he called me to ask some questions of the sort that he asks on on the podcast. 
And we were like, a, you know, a half hour into maybe our second call. And I realized, well, why aren't we just recording this? Mm. You know, I mean, this is just the, the why are we just doing this in private? People people are going to find this enjoyable. And so I just suggested that. And, and it, so we just started recording precisely the kinds of calls we had at that point been having. And you know, obviously, once we knew we were going to release as a podcast, well, then then it just it became its own thing. But it is it really just started as a phone call. I'm curious, did it change when you said, OK, we're going to do this for a podcast? I get the sense you kind of talk the same way. You could be like ordering groceries. You probably talk the same way. But what, did his manner of delivery change? Did he become more performative? Uh, no, I mean, that's how he talks. I mean, he's got this incredible, infectious laugh. I think the only difference is there are certain things that we're going to say to one another in private that we, you know, that one or the other of us will decide we just don't want to air on a podcast, right? So there's, there's I got in terms of topics, I think there's there's kind of a, a some selection going on, um, and and often it's it's not even conscious. I mean, there's just things we're just not raising when we know we're this is going to be for broadcast, and those things might come up in private, but. In, in terms of the, the actual feel of the conversation, really nothing changes. So you got into an extended conversation in the episode I listened to about lying mm -hmm. and about when it's okay to lie. I know you're very anti-lying, like even for the most part, white lying. You kind of carved out a few exceptions there, like when there's a power imbalance or when it's for self-preservation. Those seem to be the two big categories you carved well, out. Well, just to be clear, that I wouldn't say generically, not a not a power imbalance in general, but just something that, that, tr that truly puts it on the continuum of violence, right? I mean, if you're in some kind of self-defense scenario where you're, you know, you, it's like, okay, the person I'm dealing with now is an enemy of some kind, and I have to figure out whether I'm going to punch them in the face or lie. Well, that's the Anne Frank example, yeah. right? Like the, the Nazis come to your door and say, hey, is Anne Frank in your attic? Yeah. But there was another example where someone says, hey, is my kid ugly? And let's say they have an ugly kid. You still say no, because you're talking about children. I can't really imagine someone asking that. It seems improbable. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, just imagine the, imagine the circumstance in which they would ask that. Right. I mean, it, it, the, the, the background facts are such that I think it invites a real conversation. Well, let's say a guy says, hey, I want my kid to be a child model. I took him to an audition. All these other kids got the gig, but apparently my yeah, kids. I would I would be I would be I would very likely be scrupulously honest in that situation. I mean, I would just say, listen, you're, you're wasting your time. Your kid does not look like the kids you see in the right. baby in the baby food commercial. Right. right. I mean, it's just not not what your kid looks like. You have you just have to think about what you would want to know if you were in this person's shoes. I mean, do, that was the principle. That was the principle you kept going back. Yeah. I mean, do you want to waste your time pointlessly? Is that really what you are? Do you want friends who will think you're wasting your time pointlessly, but not tell you? Right. I mean, is that the, is that the kind of friends you want? Yeah. Well, the one that hit home, the example is where. You've got the guy who thinks he's an actor or a great writer, and he's been banging away at it for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And he says, here, <laughs> you know, read my novel. And, and I think you gave an example where, a real life example, where someone did that and it wasn't good and, and you were very honest with them. I actually know there's somebody else in my life who was in exactly that same situation. And in journalism, by the way, you're just, you're in that situation all the time. And I don't think I've ever been that brutally honest. I should point out, I've been on the receiving end of that and it's been incredibly important. I mean, I, I had I was writing something 
you know, when, when I had dropped out of school and uh, was just kind of writing on my own for years, um, I was writing something that in its in in that form was definitely unpublishable, right? And I had I had I just didn't know that. Oh, what was it? Now, now I'm curious. You know, it would have been some nonfiction book on the philosophy of mind, and you know, right. just reading lots of analytic philosophy and and um, also studying meditation and and you know, reading about neuroscience. Although this is before I was you know before I went and got a PhD in neuroscience, but this is I had dropped out of college between my what would have been my before what would have been my junior year and was you know started I started writing and was you know literally years into a project which I was showing to a few friends and many friends gave me nothing but praise as feedback but one friend who um I mean, I didn't know him all that well. I mean, it, it, it might have been it might have been easier for him to to deliver the the coup de grace because he we weren't all that close. But and he was also an academic and he was an academic philosopher. And he said, "Listen, this is unpublishable. You're just not. This is not. I don't care how long you work on this project. You're you're not. You're like building a ladder to the moon, right? You're just. This is doomed. You need to go back to school." And you know, stop reinventing the wheel and giving it corners. Um, you need to get put yourself in dialogue with other smart people because you're functioning like the fucking Unabomber right now, right? You're just you're in <laughs> you're in harsh. intellectual isolation. <laughs> wow. And and this is you know this is a complete failure, right? I mean that I mean I'm I'm not this isn't verbatim, but this is that this was the nature of the message he gave me, and he was right, right? And none of my friends told me the truth. I mean, you know, many of my friends did, you know, probably didn't, weren't, didn't have access to that truth. Right. I mean, they, they weren't academics, they weren't philosophers. Maybe they were just impressed by what I had written and, and that's as far as it went. But, you know, it really took someone to deliver the bad news to me, to kind of shake me out of my self-absorption and, and frustration. I mean, you know, I, I was somebody who at that point was was you know soon to be very frustrated not being able to you know figure out how to make a, a a satisfying connection to the world of publishing because there's no way I was going to publish that book right and I absolutely had to go back to school the the uncomfortable truth spoken at the right time really having its its intended impact for the good you know I've I've, I've been both the giver and receiver of that and it's um, so it's yeah, that's not a situation where the white lie is doing anyone any favors. I mean, the the only the, the favor it is accomplishing is the quite the quite selfish favor of you managing to avoid the awkwardness of saying what you really think to somebody when you know it's going to be disappointing, right? I mean, so you 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 completely sidestep that by saying, oh wow, that was that's amazing, you know, congratulations, and then you move on to the next experience. But you really have to ask yourself what kind of friend you're being when someone is asking for guidance and you're not giving it, right? You're not telling them the thing you would actually want to know if you were in their shoes. Now, if you're not that sort, I mean, there are other, I should just say as a, as a footnote here is that there are other people who are actually just not serious about, you know, you know creatively getting good feedback. They, they really just want to be told that the thing they did was great. and 
they don't you know they, they don't want to know what you really think well the truth is you don't actually want to be talking to those people about their stuff right like you you, you, you in my view you want to train those people not to ask you your opinion in the future right like this is just not the like who are these these, these, these that's a childish attitude to have toward any serious endeavor if you if you're asking for feedback but you don't really want it right you're asking for the impression that you made but you only want to hear good news i mean those people have to learn not to ask those questions right i mean they, because they're they're not actually in the game seriously um and or their children i mean that that's the thing you, you know you 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 you're, you're you're meeting adults who have not grown past the stage of childhood uh, and so, so then the question is: Do you treat them like children, or do you, you know, make it clear to them that you're not going to do that? Um, and it's, you know, you, I, I've, I've not found myself re repeatedly in these these exchanges with people. I mean, the, the people, everyone in my life knows that if they're going to ask for my feedback, they're going to get honest feedback. And and then the 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 positive feedback they get truly becomes meaningful right like if you've told someone that you don't like something and then they sh you know show you the next thing and you love it well then they know you love it right and 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 they they feel the difference between that experience and all of the other um uncertainty they've encountered elsewhere in their lives when they're not really sure that they can take the praise they're getting at face value Right, because that's a, and they're not even necessarily conscious of it, but they just there's just this sense that, you know, they're they're surrounded by people who are blowing smoke, and you know they just you know they're, it's not an honest engagement with the thing they've actually attempted, and so it's um I mean everything gets better when you start being honest, and and the the stuff that wasn't getting better, magically disappears, and then there's the the only other situation you need to think about is. How do you deal with people who are not actually grown-ups, right? Like they're they're actually children, or they're grown-ups who are compromised in some way. You know, they they're they're getting dementia, or they're they're uh, so in extremis in their suffering. You know, they're suffering some kind of clinical depression, say, and and they they can't be they have to be treated, or you th or or it seems plausible that they have to be treated with something like the paternalism or maternalism you would extend toward a child, right? Like they're just, they're not in their right mind in some sense, and you need to be, you need to walk on eggshells with them. And it, it, there, I mean, I think you got, you have to judge that on, in a, on a case by case basis, but just be aware that that's what you're doing there, right? That's a special circumstance. That's not the ordinary adult relationship with a friend or stranger that that is um, the way where you can default to honesty, um, so. Yeah, that's a long tirade I just gave you on this, but it's um, it, I mean, as far as the the single decision a person can make in life that clarifies uh, almost everything else and closes the door to the most egregious forms of unnecessary suffering in relationship and in one's career and in business, deciding not to lie is is just the the master decision. I mean, it's just it's the there's really there's nothing even there's practically nothing in second place. I mean, you know, most of us are not 
you know, running around killing people either, right? So if, if that's your problem, yeah, you can you can you can stop killing and then you can stop lying. And those are the two big things on the list. Well, you talk about how some people are not adults, they're childlike, uh, or, or they're mm. literally children. But, you know, I was listening to some of your podcasts, you said, well, I, I never lie to my kids either. Yeah. I lie to my kids all the time. Well, what, what do you lie about? I mean, can you give me an example? By the way, like they, they think my podcast is boring. They don't listen to it so I can speak freely. You know, like if they suck at sports, like tennis, or I mean, they're just miserable as tennis players. When it was a going concern, I thought, well, maybe they'll develop a forehand. I was like, oh, yeah, good. Oh, you, you, you almost hit that ball. Not bad. But in my mind, I'm like, this is this is awful. I didn't know a human being could be so bad at sports. Well, no, but, no, but you know, encouraging someone is not lying. I mean, when you say you almost hit that or, you know, good shot or, you know. You're... But that's a kind of lie also because it's like this sort of manufactured wordplay mm. where I'm sticking <laughs> to like, you know, sort of legalistic sense to just recitation of facts, but recited in an upbeat tone, which becomes its own kind of dishonesty. Well, no, I, ju I just think you have the wrong focus there. I think you have the wrong focus. I just think you, what you want to encourage there is the effort and be agnostic as to how far the effort is going to take them. Who's really agnostic about that? I mean, everyone says this about effort, but like... Well, well no, even... No, but but not, I would say that's not true. It's like your your kid is bad at sports. You still want them to be physically healthy and as physically competent as they can be, right? So, I mean, like, like, like you, you've, you've closed, the, in your mind, you've probably accurately closed the door to any, to, to sports being the, the their, their central focus in life, right? But this is really just practice in finding the right words and the right focus, uh, because none, for, for me, none of that would be an impediment to, to being honest. And and it's and in fact, honesty would deliver the distinction. Listen, you seem to be much better at this kind of sport than that kind of sport, right? And and that's just that's an honest view of their aptitude. It's like, but kids aren't dumb. Like so, I, it, it so happens. I said to my daughter, another daughter, you played a great game in nets. It it feels like you're much better at playing goalie than in playing forward. And she turned to me and said, "So what you're saying is I suck at being forward." And I kind of was saying that, but she knew right. that. Like she's like she, it, it wasn't like I was yeah. fooling her, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, that's that's the thing that that's why lying comes at such a cost, right? Because so much of the time, the person is actually aware of the truth. Again, it's so much of the the challenge of telling the truth is finding out what the truth really is and 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 how to appropriately articulate it. You know, in this case, for a child, it's not synonymous with just externalizing every neurotic thought you have there's there's a deeper truth to articulate which is you know one one you want your kids to be happy you want them to be as fit as they can be you want them to have some positive experience of sports uh what you know whatever that sport whatever those sports are uh you you don't want them to be delusional right and you you don't you don't want them to be depressed you want them to be able to experiment with all kinds of things and find what they like find what they're good at and etc and and so and your job is to is to help them do that and so then the question is do you at any point have to lie to them to equip them to do that right is is and and i you know I, what i found is the answer is no but there is there's there still is some room for for tactfully, you know, not commenting on the thing you saw, right? Like not not just bloviating everything that you're thinking at every at the moment you're thinking it, and and letting some things 
get discovered by them, right? You know, it's just, and, and also just taking the and kind of lowering the stakes, right? Because this is not, you know, this is not Wimbledon, right? It's not the finals at Wimbledon. This is this is your 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 kid just beginning to discover whether or not they have any interest in or aptitude for tennis. And then then the truth is, listen, you know, you you've never done this before, right? You're going to be you're going to be terrible in the beginning, right? This like this is going to be frustrating. You're going to the ball is not going to go over the net, right? Uh, or it's going to go out, it's going to go over the fence, right? And um you're going to get better if, if you practice, you're going to get better, right? And the, and but then and then just see what happens. I'm having trouble picturing Sam Harris playing sports. Do you, do you play sports? Yeah, well, I mean I, I don't currently um you know, I played soccer as a you know through high school, um, so that was my team sport. I was I spent a lot of time in the martial arts, both as a teenager and then you know in, in, in my midlife crisis took the form of getting very into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I am a bad golfer who golfs like once a year now, but um, technically do play golf. So you you did a really interesting podcast a couple of months ago, and it was about disappointing your fans mm. you know you didn't go into detail but from what i could tell there were people bugging you that said hey why don't you do something about the case against vaccines or why don't you do something maybe that's more sympathetic to the january 6 capital occupiers and you gave i thought a very thoughtful discussion of well look you know this isn't open mic night and if People are spouting pseudoscience about vaccines. It's not, I'm not going to engage in a debate with them. But I also was like, why are you doing this podcast at all? Why is it necessary to explain this mm -hmm. to people? Why I'm not talking about X, Y, and Z? Yeah, well, because I, I was in an uncomfortable spot because, I mean, you're really one of my master values as a podcaster and as, as a writer and as you know, just someone who's engaging consequential ideas in public is that conversation is the basis of all progress, right? Like it really is about just continuing the conversation long enough so that we can converge on shared truths, right? Whether these are ethical truths or scientific ones or contemplative ones. I mean, anything can be talked about. Anything is a matter of ultimately forcing some kind of intersubjective consensus based on shared principles of rationality and a, you know, a sane, you know, neurologically intact engagement with our five senses. And, and the heuristic here is, yeah, everything can be talked about and everything is worth giving a fair hearing, you know, time permitted. If the truth is on your side, you're, you're in fact not vulnerable to untruths or half-truths, uh, no matter how, uh, you know, seemingly pernicious, you can just keep talking and keep investigating and, keep, and you know, in the limit, the truth will win, you know, and if you rub bad ideas up against good ideas, eventually the bad ideas will, will crumble and, and only the good ideas will remain. And I do think that's generally true, except there are situations where you ju you just you have to triage your your time and attention. I mean, obviously, you know, all of life is is that situation in some sense. But um, a a global pandemic, you know, is a is a special version of that situation, and um, a um, a a level of political hyperpartisanship that is threatening to shatter a society 
is a is a special case of that situation. Whereas, yeah, no, I don't need to talk to Alex Jones about anything now because there's just there's giving him any airtime is is a net negative. I mean, it's just it's spreading toxic waste informationally just to then give yourself the task of cleaning it up, right? And it's just not it's not worth it, right? So I mean, that, so but I it is. It was intention. My unwillingness to entertain certain ideas on my podcast was intention with with my stated principle of, listen, you know, I can talk about anything here and it's going to be fine. And so um, and I just had to acknowledge that because I'd gotten so much, um, you know, so many requests and and criticisms or, you know, on, on this front It's just like, you know, why not have Brett Weinstein on the podcast to debate all of his wing nuttery around uh, vaccines. It's a waste of time and probably worse, right? It's a waste of time that is that is liable to confuse a significant percentage of the audience. So the Brett Weinstein thing is particularly painful because I respected him. I thought he was very brave. The whole Evergreen State University thing. Yeah. He has an importance in all this, which kind of transcends his his stature i would say in, in the mainstream world of ideas like if I, if I went on the street and asked people who brett weinstein is most people wouldn't know but i guess in the world of podcasting in the world of punditry and whatnot he looms large because he's this example of a guy who wasn't just in good standing with centrist classical liberals i put you in that category i put quillette in that category and then he just went into some sort of la la land and started spouting pseudoscience about vaccines and it became really awkward because other people whom I respect, yeah. listeners, writers, they had such an inventory of respect and sympathy for him that that carried over into a desire to like, well, at least have him on your show, at least let him make his case. Put someone like you or even me in the awkward position of saying, actually, I'm not going to do that because his case is BS. That's a painful thing to do. And by the way, you know, I, I know you talk a lot about honesty, uh, the way you talked about Joe Rogan, you did a segment on him. Personal commitments make a difference in the way we talk about people. And we're, we're not truth-telling machines when we talk about other human beings, people who we know and formally have dealt with. This must be a kind of painful area for you because I know that telling the truth and being very objective is very important, but everyone has personal commitments. It's definitely confusing ethically. I mean, and it's not something that I have a, um, a worked-out position on. I, I don't actually know what should swing the balance here, whether it's being exhaustively honest in, in detailing one's concerns about what a person is doing uh, or having some personal loyalty to that that uh, person who is a friend or a colleague. But I mean, as you say, it does matter. I mean, ha having met somebody and having liked them and having had good times with them, and even you know, in the in certain cases, having actually become f their friend, that does change how you engage the, that person publicly, for better and worse, right? I mean, it's, I think it's a problem with journalists to get too socially connected to the people in 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 the fields that they cover, right? I mean, you have you know journalists in tech who become social with you know tech CEOs, and then it becomes very difficult to honestly report on what they're up to. Yeah, I, I actually don't know how to navigate it, you know, in any kind of first principles way. It's you, you just sort of have to take each case as, as they come. 
From a purely consequentialist, life-saving point of view, the most ethical thing to do is call bullshit on someone, even if it's your friend, and say, this person is spreading misinformation about vaccines and COVID. To the extent this person's influential, people are going to die. I don't care that he and I had a good time together five years ago. Like, this has got to stop. There are even cases of, in someone's timeline, you know, this is someone who dies of COVID. They're pushing Brett's podcast on the topic you know, as one of their last acts on earth. We don't know for certain that that was the thing that made them into an anti-vaxxer. Right. Or we don't even know that vaccine would have saved that person. Yeah, no, but when you, when you run that experiment in, with millions of people, you're, you can be pretty pretty sure that... Statistically, yeah. You know, the, the, the numbers are, are going to go one way. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, again, I don't know what the ground truth is here ethically, because on the one hand, you can, you can say, yeah... Uh, you, you should use the standard you would use for a stranger here and just, you know, take these people's heads off publicly when you see them spreading mis misinformation on about vaccines, say. And what's happening is you're contaminated by your friendship or by your, your positive meetings with these people. And that's, that's a, a kind of ethical failing. But you can also flip it and say the attitude you take toward a stranger represents a kind of moral confusion. I mean, you're, like you're, you're, you're actually failing to have the appropriate compassion and insight into their circumstance that you would have if they were a friend of yours. You're giving vent to your most gratuitous, most you know, highly charged uh, and divisive criticism of them. And you're part of the problem. You're part of what has made social media so dysfunctional, right? The lack of empathy, the lack of, I mean, you're capable of saying stuff about people in ways that they're guaranteed to see and then react to that you'd never say to their face, even. Forget about friendship. And now a message from another podcast that I think you're going to like. It's called The Lost Debate. And unlike the Quillette podcast, which is mostly just me, this one's got three hosts and they feature a lot of viewpoint diversity. You've got former Obama staffer Ravi Gupta, Corey Bradford, a former political organizer who worked in the Deep South and also became a TikTok star, and Ricky Schlott, a Gen Z New York Post columnist and free speech libertarian. Now the whole idea of the lost debate is that it's a non-profit enterprise to get people out of their mainstream media echo chambers without diving into alt-media conspiracy theories. Twice a week they cover the latest news and trends, and even though it's a debate, it isn't vicious cutthroat left versus right stuff. These are constructive discussions between real people. And again, those real people are Ravi Gupta. There are three places in the world that do this kind of research, this gain-of-function research, and one of them is in Wuhan. Corey Bradford. Black and brown communities, they want police reform. They definitely want better treatment from police, but they don't want to eliminate police or defund them. And Ricky Schlott. As a libertarian, I think bodily autonomy is a principle that's really important to me. Join the conversation today by searching The Lost Debate on YouTube or any podcast platform. And now back to our own Quillette podcast. Rogan made it easy for you because he was humble about it because he apologized. And mm -hmm. I thought you did a very, I thought you had a very good, it was a monologue episode. You didn't have a guest. Whereas Brett Weinstein keeps doubling down. Yeah, but, but so, but I mean, Brett, you know, I've, I've hit Brett really hard on my podcast. Brett can't be happy with what I've said about him and his whole project on my podcast and on other people's podcasts. I mean, I just, I, I just have not made any secret of how I view what he's been up to. My, my coping strategy was just not to really mention his name. 
which is which is a cop out. Well, I mean, I've done you know, I've also not mentioned his name and I've not mentioned Joe's name, you know, all the while talking about them in the same sentence as I'm talking about many other people who are been sort of on their side of this public conversation. Again, I don't I don't know which way uh, to bias it here, because the fact that it matters that you know someone personally, that can be viewed as a as a good thing. I mean, it is the very essence of a humanizing thing, right? And the fact that you don't know somebody else and you can despise them, you know, uh, based on what in the end is a may just be your your internal imagery of who they are as a person. You can't really be sure that you're even responding to to the person in the world. I mean, maybe you're just maybe you know it's it's. It is a kind of hallucination that just has a few touch points with their their Twitter feed or the one interview you read or the one it's just but then you see this play out online. Well, clearly we have way too much of that. It's analogous to, you know, most people have experienced as road rage. Right. I mean, road rage is such an unnatural thing. It's like it's I mean, people who would be terrified to ever get in a fight, ever, right? We are essentially, uh, you know, disposed to antagonize somebody sight unseen. I mean, you can't you can't even see who is in the box in front of you, and yet you're honking your horn and you're flipping them off, and you know you're you're one stoplight away from discovering that there's you know a, a 250 pound mixed martial artist coming out of the the car in front of you, ready to pull your head off your shoulders, um, and yet you you for whatever reason i mean just the circumstance was such that, that the fact that you were alone in your steel box you felt like you could just sound off at this person not knowing what you were going to get it's just a, it's completely delusional right and there's something like that happening to us on social media and yeah i mean just to hear you describe it i mean it it, it does seem to me that i mean this is at least one vote in favor of more restraint, more of the humanizing principle, more of the deference to having, you know, what it would be like to have a social connection to this person, even if you don't have one, and and to be guided more and more by that. That seems to me to be as likely the right answer as being more um, unfiltered in one's, you know, quote, honesty, with, you know, just basically treating everyone like a stranger and just all ideas on their merits. Even people who don't listen to your podcast, I think just in the last, oh God, hour, I guess, uh, have, has, have established that you're a fairly thoughtful and humane person. Can we talk about how crazy it was that, I guess it was a few years ago, the Southern Poverty Law Center, I think they identified you as somebody who whose ideology channels people yeah. into the alt-right. They said you were like, like a gateway drug to evil right-wing people. What the hell was yeah, that Yeah, well, about? I mean, there were some... I'm sure there are some things that I, I haven't seen that they might have done, and, but and they they certainly put several of my friends on lists. I mean, they put Ayan Hirsi Ali on a list of anti-Muslim bigots, right? I mean, as insane as that is, or or Majid Nawaz who was on that same list, I think. But I think I think I was on their hate watch page by virtue of um, one of the articles that Ezra Klein wrote in in Vox about my podcast with Charles Murray. Right. That's that's how that played out. So, yeah. So, you know, Ezra Klein 
essentially calling me a racist pseudoscientist, even though he claimed he wasn't calling me a racist pseudoscientist. That is, in fact, what he was communicating. That got the attention of the Southern Poverty Law Center, and, and so they, they kind of summarized it on their hate watch page. I want to talk to you a little bit before we go about your treatment of Islam. My own perspective on Islam, I would say, has changed in the last decade, because here in Canada especially, now that the war on terror, we don't talk about it as much, and instead what you're looking at is a, more of a culture war that is led in its radicalized progressive factions, primarily by privileged white people who either have a Christian background or no religious background whatsoever. Here in Canada, some of the people who are the staunchest defenders of things like free speech, they're steadfastly against mob culture. A lot of them are immigrants from Muslim countries, and, and many of them are still practicing and even devout Muslims, which has caused me to sort of reassess a lot of my views about Islam. It's, it's made me appreciate how some of the authoritarian cultural elements that immigrants to Western societies have fled, in many cases, have informed in a very welcome way their, their appreciation for a lot of the liberties that maybe native-born Canadians and Americans they're happy to ignore that or they, they take it for granted. Have your views changed at all in regard to Islam's place in Western societies? Well, I think what you're talking about there is more the generic experience of immigrants, right? I mean, you know, Islam aside. Well, yes and no, because such a high percentage of the authoritarian countries in the world, unfortunately, do happen to be Islamic countries. Right. So, I mean, I guess I could say the same about people I know who came from former communist regimes yeah. uh, in, East, yeah. in Eastern Europe, for instance. Yeah, but I mean, th there you're, you're, you have a selection problem, right? I mean, these, these people are the very essence of self-selecting. These are people who are leaving those cultures and countries for a reason, and, and because they don't want to live, uh, you know, under theocracy in the case of Islam, or they don't want to live under, you know, authoritarian communist regimes. Um, and so we're getting people who, who really are valuing, you know, Western liberalism. Uh, it's, the, it's the very reason why they came, in addition, in many cases, to just seeking economic opportunity. When I'm talking about Islam, I'm, I'm not talking about people as much as I'm talking about the ideas people can find more or less compelling. And so if you're going to, if you're going to point to a group of Muslims who are mostly Muslim in, in name only, the, the most secular version of, of Islam on offer, well then, okay, that, you know, that, that's not a counterexample to anything I believe about Islam, because what, what, when, I, when I'm talking about Islam, I'm talking about what's actually in the contents of the Quran, right? I mean, like, in, in the biography of Muhammad and the Hadith and the literature to, to which people will default when they really have to get down to what the doctrine is, right? And there, I mean, I, I just make the point that, and it's a, it's a taboo one, even among atheists, that all of our religions are different, right? They're not equally in error. They're not equally confused about 21st century science or 21st century moral norms or political norms. They're, they're not equally antithetical to modernity. I mean, some of them, you know, give each other a run for the, the money, right? I mean, it's, it's not it's not like Islam is categorically worse than Christianity on, on every point, although I would argue that in most countries, in most communities, even in the West, it's at a different moment in its history, uh, which is to say that when we're meeting 
Muslims in, in many contexts were, were, were often meeting Christians from a, from a former century, the presence of a, a smartphone in their hands notwithstanding. Any comparison of, quote, fundamentalist Islam with fundamentalist Christianity is usually confused in, in, in terms of you know, what, what that commits the, the, their adherence to. You, I mean, you take a phenomenon like the Islamic State, otherwise known as ISIS, and you ask yourself, well, how surprising is it that that, that thing happened, right, and may yet happen again? I mean, it's, it's, to some degree, it's still happening. It was just so, you know, our, our attention has wandered from it. But, you know, it's, it's not like the Islamic State is, is completely gone. How surprising is it that that happened under the banner of Islam? Uh, and I would say that if you actually consult the texts, it's not surprising at all. Right. I mean, it's just in fact, you would expect it to happen. You'd expect it to happen just like that. And I expect it to happen again. Right. But if if you would ask a, the question, well, how surprising would that be if the, all those all those people, you know, behaving in precisely those ways claim to be Jain or Tibetan Buddhists? Right. It would be astonishing. Right. It just would not it doesn't it wouldn't even compute. I mean, there's 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 literally no reading of Jainism that could get you the Islamic state. Right. So um, it's just it, these differences matter. And yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, just like everyone else, my attention has wandered from the problem of, of Islamic theocracy because it's just not currently salient. Right. I mean, the Islamic state has been largely bombed in, into submission. But the moment we start having major acts of Islamic terrorism in you know the capitals of Europe again or in the U.S., it's going to you know it's going to be very easy to understand the logic of it. We'll know exactly why people are doing what they're, they're what they're doing. We'll we'll know what their real beliefs are. We'll know that they really do think they're going to get into paradise. We'll know what the holy books say about all that. We'll know why the communities around these people find it very difficult to talk honestly about the phenomenon because they're also enamored of the same holy books. You know, it's a problem we are not going to outgrow until we outgrow our, our slavish respect for these books. Just to be fair, as we're having this conversation, war is raging in Ukraine. And last time I checked, I think the Orthodox Church in Russia gave its blessing to Vladimir Putin's campaign in Ukraine. So, oh, of course. I mean, but that's that's my point. It's just it's just not. It's at a different moment in its history. It could easily. I mean, there there are places where Christianity is every bit as crazy as it was in Europe in the 14th century. I mean, if you go to sub-Saharan Africa and talk to the Christians, right? The, the, you, you can meet Christians who are hunting witches. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean literally hunting witches. Well, the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda was some kind of weird offshoot oh, yeah. of Christianity. Yeah, that was amazing. I'm going to ask you one more question, then I'm going to let you go, because I've had you for a long time. Completely different gear. You have written that, based on your understanding of neuroscience, free will is something of a farce. And in fact, we are our brains are basically biomechanical puppets. Do you still believe that? Yeah, I mean, I, what I believe about free will is what most dispassionate scientists and philosophers believe about it in their their more lucid moments. I believe it too, but I don't uh, I don't want to believe it, which is why I don't like talking about it. So it's kind of depressing that you talk about it because it's it's nice to believe that we have free will. Well, no, but I mean what I what I additionally believe, I mean I believe one extra thing 
the the common belief is that we experience free will. Or we in some sense know we have it as a matter of experience, but it's impossible to make this experience square with what we understand to be true about the nature of physical causality, right? I mean, there's just there's no there's just no account of physics or biochemistry or or genetics or anything else. You know, there's no cut at what we are as biological information processing systems that makes sense of this this internal experience we have of being the true upstream authors of our thoughts and intentions and subsequent actions. Uh, you didn't make yourself, you didn't pick your parents, you didn't make your genes, you didn't put you didn't create the brain that in its present state is going to be the proximate cause of everything you think and do. Um, you had you just didn't do any of that, right? You didn't you didn't create the environment that that did so much of that in concert with your genetics, right? You didn't you didn't pick the, the, the you know you didn't pick the language you learned first. You did I mean just nothing. You were in control of absolutely nothing. And yet everything that happened to you and the the neural stub neural substrate upon which it happened determines the next thing you do, right? So there are many philosophers and scientists who try not to absorb the implications of that, and uh, they call themselves compatibilists. I've um, debated my friend Dan Dennett and you know people on that topic. But I mean, I, I, I do view that as all an, an elaborate dodge of the plain fact that that in you, which is witnessing your experience, is not the source of of all of the unconscious events that it, that are producing every aspect of your experience, including your voluntary behaviors and your 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 most deliberate choices. Uh, the one thing I, I add to this picture, which, is novel is that I don't think we have an experience of free will in the first place. There's, there's actually nothing to be mystified about. There's nothing to be surprised about in this account because, you know, on my account, your experience of the present moment is totally compatible with free will being an illusion. In fact, it's, it's I mean, my line from my book, Free Will, is that the illusion of free will is an illusion. I mean, there is no illusion of free will. It's not like there's it's not like there's a powerful experience of free will, and it turns out not to be the not to be so. There, if you actually pay close attention, and this is you know once again where meditation can come in handy. It can actually cause you to have a, a an experience that that is in closer register with what you have every reason to believe is true scientifically of your brain. If you pay close attention, you'll see that you have no idea what you're going to think next, right? The thought itself simply arises. You have no idea what you're going to intend to do next. You're, you have no idea the, the next time you intend to do something, but then you decide on second thought, oh, I'm not going to do that, right? You, you have no idea when that veto is going to emerge next. You know, if I ask you to think of a famous person, there's just going to be a, 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 a few names and faces percolating on the margins of consciousness and then one will promote itself to the one to be the one you actually think about but at no point did you pick any of those famous people right you couldn't have thought about the ones you don't know right i mean that's you're not free to you're not free to think about people whose names and faces you don't know and of all the you know of the thousand you do know you can't account for why you didn't think of sylvester stallone 
right? I mean, you you per, you, you perfectly know who Sylvester Stallone is. You quote could have thought of him, but in fact, given the state your brain was in, you couldn't have thought of him. I mean, you could no, you could no more have thought of him than you could have suddenly started speaking in Chinese if you don't speak Chinese, right? I mean, it's like there's it was simply not in the cards, neurologically speaking. Where's the freedom in that? The experience of being a mind, the experience of of thinking and intending and therefore doing, the experience of desiring things. You didn't pick your desires. And if you change your desires, you didn't pick that moment where you suddenly thought differently about them and began to, you know, work against them, right? You didn't, if you're going to make an effort, you didn't pick the fact that you could only make effort to that degree and in that way and then in that kind in precisely that way in that moment. How do you explain the fact that you you didn't make 10% more of an effort? How do you explain the fact that you made twice as much effort than you did yesterday? None of this is a circumstance of freedom. Absolutely none of it. And as a matter of experience, this is true. And yet, once you have this experience, you experience total freedom from this being a problem. There's nothing depressing about this. There's no, in fact, it is the experience you want. You don't want the control you think you want. You, you, what you want is the palpable mystery of being in each moment. You want a, you want an experience of, of something that is sacred and awe-inspiring and profound, right? And you want to be, what's more, you want to be able to locate that in the ordinary, right? In the, in just the ability to move your hand, right? So like, how do you move your hand? You have no idea. I mean, just you move your, you move your hand. It is a complete fucking mystery. It's as mysterious as anything you will ever experience on any drug, ever. Almost like it inspires a belief in the spark of the divine and the human soul. Well, but but the yeah, but the this that spark can be can be directly experienced in every moment of consciousness. It just it just to call it divine is to add a layer of of kind of propositions, you know, and, and metaphysics on top of it that is just, you know, intellectually unwarranted and, and just unnecessary. It doesn't, it doesn't actually, it, does, it certainly doesn't improve the experience, right? I mean, there, there's the experience of awe and wonder and the brightness of consciousness, right? And the groundlessness of it, right? And this is, this is, this is what awaits a mind that can feel beyond this the, the the cramp of self, right? The cramp of of egocentricity, the cramp of I, and this is the basis for the contemplative life and mysticism and you know spirituality and ultimately religion, right? I mean, it's like the people who who fall into this well come out talking about you know you know often talking within the constraints of their pre scientific worldview. You know, if you if you go back you know a few centuries, you you give you have people who have no notion of even the possibility of you know running a scientific experiment or you know anything else that that gives us the kind of intellectual content we have now with with a rational worldview but even in in the modern context people who have this experience often look for traditional religious language in order to give voice to it 
but it doesn't need religious language. It, it, and it needs, and this is where, this is where I part company, company with somebody like Deepak Chopra or, or even Jordan Peterson, right? It's like, this is, this is where I, we don't get to be religious provincialists, even when we're on acid or even when we've had a, a, a breakthrough in meditation or had a, some, some, some epiphany forced on us. And we, we, we recognize that we're not separate from the cosmos, right? That, that experience of non-separation is, yes, it's every bit as important as religious people have always said it is, but it doesn't demonstrate the truth of any religious dogmatism. Right. It doesn't it doesn't you know, if you're a Christian and you have this experience of boundless awareness and, you know, even add unconditional love on top of that. Right. So it's you have this this absolute you're just bowled over by your love for all sentient beings and you feel better than you've ever felt in life. And you feel you feel so much better that you don't even feel yourself in the middle of it. Right. If you if you have that experience and you're a Christian, you're going to tend to interpret it as data in favor of your Christianity. That is a move that is actually not open to you, right? It, that is complete bullshit. And you, we know it because Hindus have the same experiences and Muslims have the same experiences and atheists like me have the same experiences. So we know, if we know anything, we know that, that, that the, the only accurate description of the logic of this kind of experience and the only way to fit it into a modern worldview is to is to forget our religious sectarianism, right? It just it, 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 we have to find a language that references just universal truths about the nature of the human mind, right? And we and and so to be hostage to any one of these traditions is to be an ignoramus, right? And and divisively so, right? You don't get to say that this most important experience in your life, the thing that you know, without which you would find your life to be meaning meaningless. You don't get to say that that is Christian, or 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 Jewish or Muslim, because it isn't. It it manifestly isn't right. And yeah, you know, centuries ago, people could be forgiven for being for for not seeing the the bankruptcy of their provincialism and sectarianism. But but in the year 2022, we really can't be. You know, that's where I'm on a, a different page than many people who would value these same experiences because, you know, many people want to move from these experiences and say, okay, it's, well, it's all true, right? All these religions are true. They're all kind of separate paths up the same mountain. We know that's not true because so much of what's in these religions has, have nothing to do with this project and are, are profoundly distracting, right? There's nothing about this re that requires that you hate homosexuals. Right. And, if, and, and in fact, if you're going to spend a lot of your time hating homosexuals, you're you are powerfully distracted by something that is no good for you or anyone else. Right. That's the problem. It's like we have the baby in the bathwater really has to be saved, but, but it really has to be lifted out of that bathwater. And and very few people are are up for that project. I mean, very, most people, the moment they get a taste of something spiritual, they want to link it to the so-called truths that they heard at you know at mother's knee you know in one or another religious tradition and yeah i just uh, i'm i'm not at all hopeful that our our um, our world can survive another century of 
moral balkanization. I don't see how it ends well if we if our core identities are some subset of of humanity in the end. Tribalism in general seems you know increasingly dysfunctional, but but tribalism that takes as its object things that even transcend this life, right? The tribalism that gives you some rationale by which you would you know celebrate your own death, you know martyr yourself or celebrate the deaths of your children even. I mean, that's, that is the most d- dysfunctional and dangerous piece of software human beings ever have running on their brains. And most people are running it in some form, or at least running enough of it so as to not be able to find a place to stand with which to really criticize the beliefs of people who are running it in earnest. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I just think we have to be uncompromising on, on, on that front intellectually. So this podcast is almost over. The only thing left is for me to say goodbye to Sam Harris. But that doesn't mean you can't keep listening to Quillette Podcasts. Because there's a new Quillette podcast brand called 27 Rouge, hosted by my younger Australian-based Quillette colleague, Scott Newman. I realize that's an artsy name for a podcast. It sounds more like the name of a Montreal hipster bar. But when you check out his first podcast, he will explain what the name means. Trigger alert, it's a little bit morbid, but an interesting concept. You can find 27 Rouge, that's R-O-U-G-E, wherever you download your podcasts. And Scott's first guest is a good one. Rolling Stone editor and Useful Idiots podcaster Matt Taibbi. That's 27 Rouge with Scott Newman. And now back to what's left of the Quillette podcast. Sam Harris is a neuroscientist, philosopher, New York Times bestselling author, host of the Making Sense podcast, and creator of the Waking Up app, which I briefly had on my phone. (laughs) Five minutes, all five minutes of it, yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Sure, pleasure, Jonathan. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.